Welcome to the Media Path Podcast. I'm Fritz Coleman. I'm Louise Planker. And here's a man who's been one of the tent poles of the longest-running primetime show on the NBC television network, which has been on the air since 1992. He's been there since 1995. It's my friend Josh Mankiewicz. And he's covered most of the major notorious crime stories of our era, like the 25th anniversary of the O.J. Bronco chase. It was the first time in NBA history where they ever did a split screen during the NBA playoffs because people were so fascinated by that evening. The Jonestown massacre, the John Benet Ramsey story, Michael Jackson's Dr. Conrad Murray and his prosecution. They've done the Aaron Hernandez story, the Amanda Knox story. And just uh, an amazing juggernaut for NBC. He hosts a wonderful podcast called Motive for Murder. And the last episode was episode six, Josh. Are you going to do more with other cases? I hope so. It was really wonderful. Uh, I am going to do more. Um, I just don't know when the next one's going to be. Um, the, uh, but I definitely want to do more because I had such a wonderful time doing this one. And here's the other thing, you know, you talked about how I covered the 25th anniversary of, uh, of the OJ uh, Bronco chase. Uh, I've been at Dateline so long. I actually covered, I covered the OJ when it was first happening. Yeah, so uh, that's when you're, that's when you know you've been around a long time. You actually cover the crime. And then a few years later, they're like, Hey, there's a 25th anniversary coming up. Can you do a piece on that? It's well, kind of I like got- being a teacher and someone walks in and said, you had my grandma. <laughs> there you go. Uh, what what I, I love, first of all, you're a spectacular writer, which I think is uh, is uh, congenitally bred into you from your amazing family, which we're going to talk about later. But you have a spectacular voice for this material. You and Keith Morrison, it's like sitting around a campfire and somebody spinning a tale. And I think that's what makes your podcast so wonderful. Uh, it really allows the theater of the mind to take over and the music is used beautifully. And it also, uh, I mean, it almost seems as if it's more compelling on a podcast than it is when you see the visuals because you're plugging in this stuff on your own. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to hear you say that because, you know, Keith had a podcast came out about a year ago called The Thing About Pam, which was great. And I thought at the time, and I've said to people, as great as Keith's voice is on television, it's like 10 times better on a podcast when he's just telling that story to you in your ear when you're in your car and you just have your headphones on and you're out for a walk. I mean, it, and, uh, and so I'm delighted to hear you say that because, you know, the podcast was a completely different kind of storytelling than I'd ever done before. I'd never done one before at Dateline or anywhere else. And we were kind of late to get in the podcast business. And now we're in it in a very big way. Mm-hmm. And we, the, the episodes of Dateline broadcasts are available as podcast, you can download those wherever you get your podcasts, and you can also get mine, Motive for Murder, and Keith's um, the thing about Pam. And we did another one. One of our producers, a guy named Dan Sleppy, and did a great podcast uh, called Thirteen Alibis about a guy who was uh, uh, locked up despite the fact that he had thirteen alibis. Wow. Well, what I, what I loved about the podcast experience was that we we could hear more of your thought process, the conversations in the car. That was what, what, what I really uh, gravitated towards because there's an intimacy and you feel like you're there and you feel like, you know, I want to ask you this question. What do you think about or what does it feel like or how do you approach people who are going through 
um, these kinds of devastations? And what do you think the the motivate the prime motivations are for for murder? And you cover all of that, so it's very thoughtful, and it just kind of grips you, and you just have to keep going and get it's it's you have to eat the next one, or you're not going to be able to move on. Well, you know, yeah, and I think that's I mean that's one of the huge differences in in storytelling on a podcast and storytelling on television. I mean, you know, on TV, you're always got a certain amount of distance from your audience. Although, you know, if you're, if the less you have and the more you can be like the Fritz Coleman's of the world and sort of be, you know, <laughs> have like, have like, you know, you're, you're like everybody's friend in their home every day telling them what the weather is and a lot of other things. That's what you want. You don't want to feel like, like you're doing this all the time, like you're a mile away. And that's the, uh, that's the great thing that goes away with podcasts is that you can talk about stuff that you couldn't talk about in an hour of dateline or two hours, like how you deal with the people who've suffered tremendous grief, what it's like to talk to people like that, what it's like to try to book people like that, particularly people who are skittish and for one reason or another don't want to appear on television or are afraid to have their story told. And those are all things that we have to go through all the time. And this podcast, Motive for Murder, was a chance to sort of let the audience in, our audience, that sort of built-in Dateline audience that we have every week, in on sort of how how Dateline gets made and put together and some of the yeah. thought process and well, what we're doing. What, what you said, I, I think, points out 50% of how you earn your money every time you're on. Okay, well, half is, of it, the other 50% is stealing, so I'm interested in this. Well, okay, well, we're, we're, all, we're all doing that. <laughs> I, I did the greatest scam ever perpetrated in show business for 39 years being an L.A. weatherman. But, but, but I will say your ability um, to uh, help people navigate resurrecting this bad experience in their lives, the murder of a loved one, and doing it with just great skill, and you're always quiet, and there's always an economy of words. But the other half of that is your ability to call criminals on their stuff when you interview a guy who's already been convicted or he's waiting for conviction and you throw these facts back at him, it, it makes the hair in the back of my neck stand up because I can't imagine being able to do it myself, but you do it with incredible skill. Well, one of the interesting things, you know, one of the great things about this job is that frequently the people we interview, the people who are either awaiting trial or they've already been convicted, in a lot of cases, they don't testify. Um, they, they, don't, they don't take the stand in their own defense because their attorney tells them, you don't want to try to roll out this set of facts, this story that you're telling in front of the jury, because you'll be cut to ribbons. But a lot of them talk to us because they sort of feel like they they can know, tell their story. They can tell their story. And we will. I mean, when we do a story, we want to talk to everybody, even the accused. And they get to roll out whatever their defense is. And if it's a, if it's if it's crazy, if it doesn't meet the facts, then we're going to call them on it. That's what we all do at Dateline. And that's do you find that families of the victims um are easy to convince to tell their story as a way of going through the grieving process usually i mean you know look i mean when people don't want to talk i certainly understand it i mean the hardest thing about this job is not interviewing the murderers it's talking with those families that's the part that, the, that that's that's the, the brutal part of this job you know frequently the only time you know we don't most of the stories we do are not uh, involving victims who are well known and so frequently, the only time that person's story is going to be told is on Dateline. And maybe it's been in the local paper, but it was, it was this long. It was a little short squib. Sometimes it's on local television where they live, but it's a minute long. And we say, look, you're, you're going to be able to tell us a lot about who this person was uh, and how they lived 
and what you did after they died and what your life's like now. And for some people, that is something that they, that's an opportunity they don't want to pass up. And of course, if people don't want to do it, which sometimes they don't, then we don't do it. I mean, we have is, no, there any, is there any healing in that for them to, to, to see that piece of work? Because I know you don't believe in closure, but is there anything about... No. No. I don't. I, I don't think there is any such thing as closure because, you know, I mean, as long as we talk about the podcast, you know, let's say, okay, fine. We catch the person who killed your wife, husband, brother, sister, mom, dad, best friend. Um, and they catch them and they put them on trial and then they get the death penalty. What? Then everything's even. Then, then we're back to square one or the, the scales of justice are, are equal. They're not. People never get over that. This idea that like, like a criminal justice proceeding somehow makes families whole again. I've really never seen that. They don't, the, the, you know, the only time heals. And sometimes that doesn't do it either. But sometimes in telling the story, it, uh, it helps people. And people, sometimes people like hearing the Dateline story that airs because it, you know, we do the best we can to accurately reflect what that person was like. And also frequently uh, a trial, even if the person's convicted, it leaves them, they miss the opportunity to hear the guy who committed this crime cross-examined. Frequently, as I said, the only thing that guy's getting cross-examined is on daylight because they wouldn't take the stand in the trial. So you're it's saying- it's not a trial him, that, go ahead, Weezy, I'm sorry. No, you're, you're saying things to him that the family is never going to be able to say and that right. being able to experience that with you is some, provides some form of satisfaction, small measure. It does. I mean, I think it does for some people. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that the that the experience of being on Dateline is cathartic and it will fix your problems because it's, you know, the people we talk to are telling us about the worst thing that ever happened to them in their entire lives. And being, on, being in court is not going to cure that. And being on TV is not going to cure that. But it may help you to tell that story. Uh, it, it does uh, allow people... Uh, to regain control of the way the story is told. Mm. And I, I think for some people that does help, particularly when you hear the story elsewhere, you see it in your local newspaper on TV and you're thinking, that's not it. There's more to it than that. They're missing. They, they didn't get how important this person was. They didn't get how vital they were or how important they were to me. And so that's one of the things that we offer that other places can't. Mm -hmm. we, we, we wanted to talk to you because we had a discussion about how the whole true crime genre is huge in America in all of its forms, TV, in, in the print media, in movies and everything. And I want to know what, what you think it is. I, I know what I think the success of your story is about, but what do you think it is about human nature that draws people to murder and mystery and scary topics? I think it's just masterful three-act storytelling by guys that have the talent to deliver the material well. But there's a thing about humans like dark movies as well. What is it about that that makes it so compelling? I mean, look, I think, you know, I think stories like that, even when they were, you know, written by, um, written by, written as fiction by authors, those have always attracted uh, audience, whether they were books or whether they were movies or whether they were TV shows. Um, I mean, you know, The Fugitive was on the air for a lot of, lot of years. Uh, Perry Mason was on the air for a lot of years. 
Do you um, like the new one? Do you like the new Perry Mason? It's dark. Well, I do, except I, I, I don't understand why. I mean, clearly they own the title and they thought, okay, well, we can get a, we can get a, a TV show made. But, like, it's got nothing to do with Perry Mason. No. If, I, if I owned that name and I was going to do a Perry Mason show, I make, I make him a lawyer, but he's not the king of L.A. criminal lawyers the way he is in the TV show. I'd make him, like, an associate in somebody else's firm. I'd set it in, like, 1958 in L.A., it's Mad Men for lawyers, and I have each season. Each season is one case that he's working on all the way through. I mean, I think this one's great. Matthew yeah. Reese is amazing. Let's make yours and call you it know. Gary Mason. You know, but right, but it's this is not the Perry Mason that I grew up watching, and I've watched them all. I think one thing that happens in true crime. One of the reasons people like true crime. First of all, people like seeing the system work correctly, particularly at a time in our lives when nothing seems to be working correctly, but. Right. I think it's also, you know, most people go through their lives and they are never victims of violent crime, which is a very good thing. But everybody has been in a relationship that did not go the way they wanted it to. Uh, and I think that, that, you know, part of what attracts people to Dateline is, as Dennis uh, Murphy, one of our correspondents, famously said, it's not the murder, it's the marriage. I mean, these are not really just random murders that we cover. These are relationships that went off the rails at some point. And then someone thought to themselves, oh, you know, I know my way out of this. I'm going to kill you. And then I'll get all the money. And I want it to pay you alimony. And I want it to look at you with our kids. And people make these insane calculations in which they sort of think of themselves, oh, yeah, murder is the way out of my problem. And these are usually not, you know, we're usually not doing serial killers. These are people who've never done it before and probably think of themselves, and I'm never, ever going to do anything like this again. I just need this one murder to get me around this one corner in my life, and then everything's going to be okay. And that sort of calculation about relationships, what went wrong, how people can do this to somebody that maybe that they once loved and maybe might be the mother or father of their kids, that's sort of what keeps people watching Daylight. You know, so I think it starts with that concept of like, you know, We've all had that concept, whether it's at work or in a relationship of like, if only this person weren't here right now, <laughs> you know, like you take that to its like furthest extreme and you're, you know, and you've got like an ax out of the garage and you're waiting for them to come up the driveway. But I was wondering, Josh, if another um, explanation as, as to the increased popularity, popularity is the online sleuthing communities that have grown out of some of these high profile cases where people actually feel like they could actively participate in oh, yeah. injustice. Oh yeah. There's no, I mean, which actually, it's actually one of the things that sort of separates, you know, the Dateline fans from the fans of, you know, other TV programs, maybe. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, NCIS fans, they're, they're, I'm sure they're devoted and they love all those people and they go to fan events and they, you know, they get things signed, but they don't see themselves as being on the same mission with those people because those people are actors, but, but our audience, they see us all as sort of working together for mm. the common good to solve crimes. Um, and they are very, very interested in it. And they ask me when I meet them, they ask very, very detailed questions about different crimes. Wow. How, how easy is it to get the prosecutors tell their side of the story? Usually, excuse me. Um, usually police and prosecutors will not talk to you until the case has been adjudicated. Um, so we sort of have to wait to get that part until the verdict comes in. 
And the verdict can be anything. The verdict can be guilty, not guilty, case dismissed. But there's got to be some sort of finality to it before you can usually speak with police and prosecutors. But usually they're willing to talk. Um, they're usually willing to share what happened. Every now and then you run into somebody who won't. But that's, that's the exception, not the rule. Usually that side of the ledger always talks. Yeah, my husband's a prosecutor, and he had Dateline in, in the courtroom every day for a case, and then uh, it never it it was it didn't wind up becoming a Dateline story. And he was kind of like, you don't want to say, hey, why didn't they cover this murder? Because of course, you know, people have died. But uh, he would have been happy to talk if after after the it, verdict. Yeah, usually usually people are willing to talk. Yeah, what take, take me through the process. Where do the ideas come from? Are they submissions from viewers or newspaper articles? How far in advance do you have to do the advance work, and how does that process work? Okay, we read the newspapers all over the country every day, and there's a story meeting every day in New York in which all of a lot of stuff sort of gets synthesized and talked through. We get suggestions from viewers. We get suggestions from local stations around the country. We've been around for so long now that we get suggestions from cops, prosecutors, even defense attorneys. Um, and also victims advocates and people like that that we've worked with over the years when they hear about stuff they call us so we start making calls on stuff right away then of course it depends you know if there's a plea or if the, the you know the, the person pleads out right away then there's no trial then we can sort of go into the field much sooner if there's a trial we're usually going to have to wait for that to happen and for that to end and for there to be a verdict and sometimes you know if it's a mistrial and they're going to try the guy again in six months sometimes we have to wait for that too or if you know, the judge has a heart attack and they, they start all over again. I mean, all kinds of things. We're kind of at the mercy of court schedules. But assuming that everything happens on schedule, then we, you know, we, we generally go out. We start making calls early. We go pre-interview. We have associate producers and assistant producers who go out into the field first, line people up, uh, try to get them to agree to talk to us. Um, I start getting the research or start reading, you know, I start reading up on the case and sort of incrementally following it as it goes along. And then you interview as many people as you can before the trial happens, because although prosecutors won't talk to you, frequently the accused will, if they're out of custody, uh, frequently the supporters of the accused will, the victim's family will, friends, people like that, any witnesses, you know, the first paramedic of the scene, you can usually get people like that. And then once the trial's over, then you want to go quickly, talk to prosecutors, talk to police, and then start writing. Start to finish, a couple of months usually. Now, if we step on the gas, it can be a lot less than that. And you work a couple of stories ahead in different teams doing different stories for you? Different or? teams are doing different stories. I'm on like six things right now. But that's because we had this long layoff because of, uh, of the pandemic. And so all the trials ground to a halt. So How many days a year are you on the road? You guys are traveling a lot, all the time. A lot. I mean, I mean, I'm usually. I mean, the good thing about it is you're not continually on the road because eventually you have to be back here where I'm sitting right now to write these things and and voice them. And so that takes a while to sort of go through it and figure out what you're going to use and what's too long and what's too short. And you know, we do the producer and I do an outline first. We figure out what we like, where we're going to. You know, where we're going to introduce what theme, you know, maybe, uh, you know, this guy beat the same charge 10 years before. Well, we're going to delay that. We're not going to tell you that in the first five minutes. You know, this was a guy who was accused of murdering his first wife and now he's accused of murdering his second wife. We might we might save the part about the first wife till a little farther into the hour. So we, we sort of break it down that way. Then we sit down. 
start writing, look, look at it. It's very collaborative. People in New York uh, make their adjustments to it as well. How are the states handling a, the right to a speedy trial versus we can't put a jury together right now? Well, you mean right now? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, I, that's clearly an issue. I mean, as they're, as they're picking juries. I mean, definitely people are afraid to go to, um, afraid to, go to courthouses to sit there for voir dire. Um, I, I'm sure that's a, that's a, I haven't heard specifically about that, but I'm sure that's an issue in almost every jurisdiction in America. Like nobody wants to go to jury duty now. Um, because they don't want to leave their house and go down to the courthouse with 300 other people who've been called in at the same time. That's going to be a big problem. But one of the things mitigates against that is that a lot of the trials sort of back in March stopped halfway through. So they've now had to start up again. Is there one in your career, one case that left you the most perplexed and the most unsettled when it was over and one that surprised you the greatest? Well, I mean, there's too many that are, that are, I mean, there's a, you know, there was a guy in, uh, in Orange County who uh, uh, wanted to steal this ocean going yacht that belonged to a, a retired couple. And so he pretended he was, he was interested in the test cruise and he brought a friend of his along. It was actually a gang, gang member and they took the gang member uh, who he'd like bought, he'd hired him off some, some corner just that, that morning, didn't know him at all, hired him for muscle. Uh, they took him to the Gap and got him dressed very sort of inoffensively, uh, and then said he was—he's my accountant. And then they went out on the water and they overpowered these people and they tied him to the anchor and threw him overboard. Um, and that's a story so terrible that like it's 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 hard to tell that story in any way other than with some utter revulsion. And the 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 guy who was convicted of it um, made himself available. Um, I think because his attorney wanted to keep him off death row. So I actually had an interview with that guy, uh, which was, uh, which was uh, for me unforgettable. And, you know, I've covered other stories in which I, not very many, but I've covered other cases in which I didn't think the person was going to be found guilty. And then they were, um, and frequently they are found guilty because the toughest defense to make, I think these days is okay. I cheated on my wife. And I'm a liar. I lied to her and I lied to my friends and I lied to my family and I lied to everybody at work. Uh, I was carrying on with somebody else who I then later married. That's all true. But I didn't kill her. I'm not lying about that. So I'm, a, I'm not a good guy, but I'm not a murderer. That's a very tough argument to make. And there's a guy that I, uh, that I uh, interviewed in, um, uh, in Arizona who made exactly that argument. And he got convicted. I did not. I, I could not have voted to convict that guy because the evidence wasn't there on the murder, I thought. But again, it doesn't matter what I think. I'm not on the jury. I'm just telling the story. Now, well, let's talk about the, the, the three motives for murder that you that you outline in the podcast. Okay. Love, well, money, pride. I have a friend who's a homicide detective, now retired, who says, and, and the original title of Motive for Murder was Love, Money, Pride. Um <laughs> And then uh, the marketing people got hold of it, and they decided it had to have the word murder in it. So, uh, so I relented. But I have a friend who's a homicide detective who says that all murders, when you don't immediately know what they are, when there isn't a person standing over the body holding a smoking gun, all murders can be chalked up to love, money, or pride. Um, I want the insurance money. I don't love you anymore. I don't want to pay alimony. I love this other person and my life would be better if, if I had them instead of you. Um, or I don't like the way you looked at me. I don't like the way you're talking to me. I don't like the way you're disrespecting me by running around on me. And that once you can sort of figure out 
what the motivation is, it's a lot easier, he says, to figure out who it is. Which one of those does control fall under? Which one does it say again? Control falls under pride? Control would be pride. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Control is usually pride. And that's obviously, I mean, that's a huge, huge, I mean, we, we, I, I'm covering a case right now where the, what the, what the guy did in this case is like, it, it's almost like he read some handbook of how to be like an abusive controlling guy. And he's doing these things that I've heard about in like 25 to 30 other cases. And he thinks he's the first guy to do this. He's, you know, taking his wife's keys so she can't leave the house and he's blocking her, her car in with his, and he's uh, controlling all the money and he's belittling her all the time. And he's telling her she's fat and unattractive and nobody would want her. So there's no point in even thinking about leaving. I mean, it's all, it's all like right out of like the abuser's handbook. But the first time you hear it, if you're on the other end of that, uh, it's a little more effective. I've heard it too many times. Um, mm -hmm in too many cases, but it unquestionably works. And yeah, I'm going to say that's pride. You're not going to stand up to me. You're not going to tell me how to run this marriage. I'm going to decide how to run this marriage. You know, it's been fun. There are a couple of stories that I follow the path from print to Dateline. And then I think they saw the public reaction to it and created a TV show. And one of those is Dirty John. The yeah. Dirty John story, which started as an L.A. Times serial piece for five or six episodes. Then you guys did a, spent, uh, a spectacular show on it. And now it's a Netflix fiction. I mean, a, a yeah. I mean, the, uh, well, the L.A. Times, I mean, the, the L.A. Times podcast on it, I thought was great because it really like, like, like explained the story in a way that reading the, uh, the, the print story wouldn't have. I thought that was terrific. It was a great example of, of how something, a story really sort of, worked in a podcast and even better than it ever would in print. You know, I mean, I didn't cover that story. That was a Keith Morrison story. But, uh, you know, I know uh, Deborah and Tara, the, the, the duels, um, because they're, they're at a lot of the true crime events that we end up going to. And, uh, and that story is, you know, you know, change the names. And that story's played out dozens of times around America is that, you know, I mean, Deborah Newell, you know, did not want to admit that what was right in front of her was, in fact, right in front of her, that this guy wasn't honest and that he was a jerk and that he was controlling and that he was lying and he was trying to separate her from her family. And this happens all the time everywhere. I mean, the lesson of Dirty John, which is also kind of the lesson of Dateline, is if your instincts, if you're a woman and your instincts tell you this is the wrong guy or I'm scared of this guy or I don't know what he's going to do, but I feel like something, something bad could happen. Trust your instincts. Get away from it. Being with the wrong person is way worse than being alone. Is does this does uh, shows like Dateline and the murder podcasts that women are obsessed with? Does it help them see the red flags? Is this the reason they're drawn to this type of programming? I, I think in some cases it does. I mean, women are so often the victims in, in the cases that we end up doing, and that's not that we're ignoring the men. I mean, women are overwhelmingly the victims. And one of the things you see in this job is this 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 wave of violence in this country against women, most of it by men, uh, and most of it like never reported because it didn't make it to a police blotter or an emergency room. And a lot of it, like I said, is, you know, crimes you can't really report, like blocking somebody's car in or taking their keys or controlling them in a way that, that, that keeps them at home and, and keeps them sort of under your thumb. And I think that is one reason why stories like the ones we tell on Dateline appeal to people frequently, so often, domestic violence is in the background of every story we cover. Maybe not every story, but a lot of stories. Domestic wow. violence or the threat of it. 
that's a pretty consistent theme. Part of what we do on this podcast is for people who are interested in any topic, this with you, it's true crime, give them ways to drill down on the topic. What other resources do they go to? What other TV or movies or print? And I'll just read a couple from TV and have you respond to it. Dirty John, what about Tiger King? Did you, were you surfing on that phenomenon at all? That was I was. I interviewed, uh, I interviewed Joe Exotic um, when he was uh, in the Slammer in uh, Oklahoma. And we were all set to go ahead with that. And then uh, we couldn't get the other people involved. So that sort of fell apart. I mean, you know, Tiger King's a little like, you know, passing an accident on the freeway. I mean, you know, there's a lot of like, like the characters. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, um, I don't know that that. I mean, I don't know that that I don't know I don't know that that teaches you anything except you know if you um, if you try to hire a hitman you are inevitably going to end up speaking with an agent of law enforcement. So <laughs> don't do point. it. Well, in books there have been some great ones that I've read. In Cold Blood, one of the great sort of full immersion the reporter goes out and tells the story. What about this new I'll Be Gone in the Dark, the Michelle McNamara show on HBO? Right. I mean, it's great. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful chronicle of that story, sort of beginning to, beginning to end. Um, we haven't done that story on Dateline, uh, in part because it was so brutal and the crimes that this guy committed were so horrific that I think we were afraid. Same reason we don't do a lot of sex crimes or crimes against children. The audience, you know, you want them to stick around. You don't want people to change the channel. And a lot of that stuff That's is very, very tough to do on network television. Um, a lot of the photos and things that, that they show, we, we wouldn't be able to. Just it wouldn't pass broadcast standards. And again, we don't, you know, we don't want our we want our audience listening and watching and paying attention, not recoiling in revulsion. So I mean, I think that's a, that's a tough story to do um, on regular broadcast television. I think it's uh, the uh, the HBO thing. I think is very good. And I, you know, I mean, the whole other part of the story in which you know she pursued this guy, Michelle McNamara did. And then died right before, you know, uh, there was sort of this payoff to the investigation. And then her friends and other people finished it for her. That's a great story just in and of itself. Yeah. And one other book, and many people think that this book changed American society, where we lost our innocence and went to the darkness, was Helter Skelter by Vince Bugliosi. Well, I mean, everybody talks about that as like the day the 60s died. Yeah. Right. Um, um yeah, I mean, you know, that and uh, and in cold blood. I mean, those are those are early examples of what what you were asking me at the beginning is, you know, people like true crime. They do. People like reading about things that they can't believe happened. Um, and uh, you know, and the, the the thing about those both those books is, you know, you felt like they could ha- like it could happen to anyone. And that's sort of the that, that's that's sort of one reason why this works is you think, you know, well, that could be me. That could be somebody I love. One of the things I liked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was it, it felt like fan fiction. Like if I could rewrite this ending, this is, this is what yeah. I would want to see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, that, that movie definitely took you back. No question. You know, reminded you of sort of, you know, what life was like back then. And if I could fix it. <laughs> yeah. Only and of course, you know, I was, you know, I was not even born then. No, no, no. Me, no. I don't yeah, know. None of us were. Right. But, I don't yeah. think, you know, they were maybe talking about the rifleman or some, some Hollywood set. But I love I love all that old Hollywood stuff. So when you go on a deep dive or what what are your passions? What do you tend to like binge and, and consume a lot of because you just can't get enough of, of it? Um uh what else? What am I uh 
What am I binging? Well, I just uh, I just saw um, yesterday. I saw um, I saw Tom Hanks' movie Greyhound on the Apple TV. Yeah, we did too. Yeah, sensational. Loved it. Um, I guess uh, it broke an Apple TV record or something. It was a huge success. Did it really? I'm not, I'm not surprised. I mean, it uh, it's terrific. Uh, I actually through the movie, of- I was like, I don't think they're speaking English. I, I, I just wanted it to go on. I'm like, no, no, can't we just like, I mean, like, you know, they, they, like, can't we go back? Can't you like sail the other way now for a while? I mean, you know. Um, go back, go back, do it yeah, again. Go but back you, across? Yeah, let's do another crossing. Um, but you do recognize that that was like back-to-back movies where Tom Hanks puts on slippers. That's right. <laughs> oh, that's right. Uh, he's going through his slipper period. Well, you know, he's the right age. I think we all are. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, I hope you'll permit me to do this. You know my feelings about your family and this book that was written about your grandfather and granduncle. So I'm just, I just want to talk about Mankiewicz's legacy, if you don't mind, okay. uh, because you come from an amazing family. You have your grandfather was Herman Mankiewicz yes. uh, of the brothers Mankiewicz, who was one of the writers of Citizen Kane. You can pretty much hang up your boxing gloves after you do that. But or, not only or, that, or the or the only writer, depending on who you talk to. But anyway, no, no. yeah. The, the other thing is, he produced Duck Soup and Horse Feathers for the Marx Brothers. Right. Your grand uncle Joseph Mankiewicz produced and wrote, co-wrote Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor, right. and All About Eve with Betty Davis, and The Letter to Three Wives, and, and let all these astonishing yeah. are keeping yeah. up. Turner Classic Movies on the map, and your brother, Ben Mankiewicz, is the great host over there. Your father was Frank Mankiewicz, who was the press secretary to Robert Kennedy, who was the person that you see in all these documentaries that made the announcement that he had died. That's right. As a son and as a father, I'm thinking to myself, could you please heap more pressure on a guy to achieve in his life than you've heaped on this man. Every single one of those people was so brilliant in their in their own right. It was really unbelievable to read the story of your family and the brothers. Yeah, I mean, no, it's it's a, they they, they, um, they they did a lot of wonderful things. I didn't know my grandfather. He was a uh, he was a drunk, and he did not even get to the age that I am now. He died at fifty six, uh, and he died feeling like a failure. Which, if you look at his body of work, is pretty preposterous that was the other thing i wanted to say to you in that story they revealed this really coarse relationship that both joe and herman had with their father your great grandfather yeah he was an unpleasable man and neither of those men even with all their amazing show business accomplishments felt like they had achieved what they wanted was really just their father's love I think that's right. I mean, I think they both. I think they both did not live up to what they thought their father wanted for them. And I, you know, I think there was also this perception in the family at that time that people who went to Hollywood, you know, sort of were not earning a serious living in a serious way. That it was like selling out. And you know, and they had both print journalists, right? Before they, yeah. I mean, I'm a. Uh, I mean, I, I. One of the things I learned from that book, from the Brothers Mankiewicz, which is written by this great woman named Sidney Stern, who worked really hard on it for a long time. Uh, one of the things I learned is that I'm a fourth generation journalist. I mean, I, I'm, I've been a reporter my whole life, my whole career. Um, my dad was a uh, was a print journalist for for a part of his career, and a TV journalist for part of his career, and a radio journalist for part of his career. He ran national public radio in the '80s. Uh, my grandfather Herman was before he was a Hollywood screenwriter. He was a uh, 
drama critic and a reporter in New York City for a bunch of different newspapers, including the New York Times. And his father, my great-grandfather, who was named Franz, um, uh, edited and wrote a German-language newspaper in, uh, in Pennsylvania, which is, uh, which is uh, where the Mankiewicz's landed in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, after they came here from Germany and Poland. Uh, there's a great story about my, my great-grandfather, which I'm going to tell you now, which is he came over here and he'd been a, uh, he'd been a teacher in, uh, in, in Germany and Poland. I say Germany and Poland because where they were, I think, sort of dependent on where the border was and that they moved back and forth. Manko was clearly a, a Polish name. Um, and um, he came over here and he was digging coal because that's what you did when you came here from that part of the world back then. And one day he comes out and I'm thinking that this might've been before the whole sort of OSHA thing hit the coal mines. And, uh, <laughs> and he comes out and he's like black with coal, like, like Wiley e. coyote after the bomb goes off. Right. And he's at lunchtime to try to eat something, you know, some sandwich or something he's brought. And one of the, uh, one of the other miners says, Hey, Mac, uh, I hear they're looking for teachers at that German English school down the road. And my great grandfather just walks off the job site. He doesn't say, okay, tell the foreman that's it for me. I'm not coming back. See you later, guys. Thanks for everything. He just walks away and walks several miles down the road, trailing a cloud of coal dust to this school, gets a job as a teacher, and then retires as a professor at City College in New York. Uh, so he became an educator here as well. But um, He taught at Columbia University or somewhere. And, 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 and at City College, yeah. And, uh, and it... Um, at some point, yeah, he was, and, and but before that, when he was in Pennsylvania, he was the uh, probably the only employee of this German English uh, newspaper. So yeah, I've got journalism going way back. And look, I mean, you know, I um, yeah, they they, they, they all they all cast a big shadow. But, oh uh, man, I, I just thought of you as the son, but but I'm sure they're all very proud of you because you do astonishing work too. I mean, look, I, you know, Joe Mankiewicz used to, you know, I didn't know my grandfather, but I knew Joe Mankiewicz was a lot younger, and he used to. He used to watch me when I was on local TV in New York and they would call me after the show and comment on like, you know, like my writing, the lighting, how I was being shot. Like he was a movie maker and he used to talk about all that stuff, which was great. Well, what, what I, I was so astonished. First of all, the, you know, Joe and Herman were there at the start of the studio system. So it was kind of fun to see how that was born. But also, I love the fact that these people were not afraid to be smart. Herman and Joe were both noted for their smart dialogue and they hung around with people like Dorothy Parker and the Algonquin Roundtable. These guys were brilliant and wrote brilliant scripts. And I thought, wow, how far we've fallen. I don't think they'd be too motivated by what they're seeing in most. Well, you know, Joe, Joe used to say that he couldn't get all about Eve made again today because, you know, there's no sex and there's no violence and there's no car chase. Um, I think he would get it made, but I think it would probably not be a studio film. It would be an independent, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think movie making's changed a lot, um, and uh, some of it's for the better, and some of it isn't. Did you learn a lot about your grandfather reading the oh, book, yeah. or, or had you heard those stories? Like when he when he quits, when he gets fired from the New Yorker, like that. That's the kind of story where you're just like, did this really happen? Yeah, I, I've I've uh, um, I did learn a lot um, because almost all the stories you get told uh, in this family about Herman. Uh, first of all, a lot of them involve him being, um, you know, absolutely plastered. And there are things that he did when he was drunk. Um, uh, and, you know, I mean, he, he was 
he was acerbic and he was smart and he was funny. And he also couldn't turn off his intellect sometimes, even when it meant insulting people who could have helped him. And as a result, like, you know, he sort of got fired all the time. Yeah. Joe was the opposite. Joe was very much sort of on the inside in Hollywood and they all loved him and he sort of played the game. And I think that also that Herman was, was less successful and spoke his mind. Uh, was part of the source of friction between the two of them. There's yeah, a very touching... Go ahead, Lindsay, I'm sorry. Well, Joe was kind of like the treasured uh, younger brother, and he he got a lot of the love and attention that Herman didn't get. And, I mean, we all come to Earth with a certain predisposition that meets with our circumstances. And I think with Herman, you know, he he was brilliant and, and hilarious, and, and you you put up with that as long as you possibly could because you wanted that goodness. You wanted that good stuff. And then there was a point where the lights turned off and you were like, I, I just can't anymore with this guy. I can't anymore. I can't be told that I'm an idiot anymore. Yeah. And yeah, there's so, a very I mean, touching story about you riding down the street, I think in a convertible with your grandmother, Herman's grandmother, wife. Yeah. Yeah. Tell yeah that she, story. Well, after, um, um, I mean, my, my grandmother was widowed when she was you know in her fifties and, um, maybe not even in her fifties. And, uh, uh, and so she, she, she lived here in LA in, in, in Brentwood and, uh, and she, um, she, she saw life through the prism of her own experience and she did not really want to swerve from that at all. And one time when I was, I don't know, 13 or 14, I was definitely too young to drive. We were driving probably to the market cause she went to the market every day and I was going with her. I think it was, I was on summer vacation from, I lived in DC, but I was, visiting her here in Los Angeles. And she went through a stop sign and the LAPD pulled her over. And the guy walks up to the car and he says, do you realize that you just went through a stop sign back there? And she said, there is no stop sign at the corner of whatever it was. And he said, yeah, there actually is. We put it in about eight or nine months ago. And she said, all right, I want you to listen to me. She goes, I've lived in Los Angeles for more than 50 years. I'm in my seventies now. And I'm not going to see and notice every single little change you make to the roads. Okay. I mean, you can put a lot of stuff in, but I mean, I've been around a long time. I'm not going to be able to keep up with all of the little things that you want to adjust here in Los Angeles. So if you want to put some stuff up like that, you should expect that some of us are just going to miss them. And while she's saying this, the guy's starting to nod, right? He's thinking like, Hmm, that's interesting. Right. And at the end of it, he gives her back her license. He's like, Okay, Mrs. Mankiewicz, have a nice day. And off we went. Uh, you kind of, you just kind of need her to say, make that speech to the people at Apple every time there's a new up, update that you have to download. Right. Yeah, it's like, right. I, I've been here for 70 years. Yeah. I've, hung, I've hung on with you for a long time. I'm not going <laughs> to catch every little thing you're changing. <laughs> I'm not going to agree to these terms of service. Let me just ask you about your dad and if you have any recollection of the political climate at the time when he was working for Bobby Kennedy. I have one Bobby Kennedy story. My, my best friend in high school went to Georgetown University. And when Kennedy decided to run for president, my friend dropped out of Georgetown and hitchhiked to California to campaign for Bobby Kennedy. And then wow. like in a month after he got here, Kennedy was assassinated. Right. He was the most unplugged and emotionally distraught person for years after that. Did you have a sense of, maybe you were a little young, but a sense of the power he was wielding as he gained notoriety? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was uh, I was 13 when he was killed, so I was paying pretty close attention to that campaign. 
Um, you couldn't live in our house and not know a lot about politics and movies. I mean, that was, you know, unless you put cotton in your ears every day. So uh, every conversation with my dad was some kind of history lesson, either about Hollywood or about Washington. And yeah, I mean, it was clear. I mean, I was, I was there in the Senate caucus room in, in 1968 when Kennedy announced he was running. Um, and, uh, and I met him probably, you know, a handful of times, probably five or six times. And he was magnetic. He was charismatic, like, like movie stars maybe used to be, but aren't anymore. Um, and so, yeah, there was a sense that like, you know, this was a giant moment in American history, but you got to remember, I mean, I mean, you know, uh, Dr. King was killed in early April and Robert Kennedy in May, you know, know, barely 60 days later. Um, I mean, it was a sense, you know, when he died that like, uh, and I even felt it. I mean, I, I think everybody did that, that like the, the wheels had come off the country, Dark first um, or, yep. you know, and it was a, you know, and then, then we were in the middle of Vietnam and, uh, and there'd been riots just a couple of years earlier. And then the president had only been killed like five years earlier. So, I mean, it was a, it was an insane time. And, and there was a, there was this feeling that like everything had changed in that moment. What were some of the more interesting people that you saw in your household growing up? Oh, uh, uh, you know, George Cukor used to come over for dinner. Wow. I remember that. Dolores Huerta and my dad, uh, I remember them plotting farm worker strategy strategy at the kitchen table. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I saw a lot of these people. I also, um, a lot of people came to Bobby Kennedy with um, all kinds of conspiracy theories, some of them, you know, well-intentioned and maybe true, who knows, about what had happened. Uh, in Dallas in 1963. And Bobby did not want to deal with any of that. And so he appointed somebody on his staff to field all these calls and talk to all these people who in many cases had like legitimate questions that they wanted raised and had some evidence. And that person was my dad. So these people, I got used to these people coming over to the house and they'd have these giant blown up photographs of the grassy knoll or other things around Dallas. And they showed us movies that some, you know, home movies that other people had shot, not Zapruder, but other films that have been made that day, other photographs that have been taken that day. So when I started covering the, uh, the investigation of the uh, house select committee on assassinations in 1978, 79, I already knew a lot of this um, because I'd sort of grown up seeing all this stuff in the living room. Um, uh, it was quite a, uh, it was quite eye opening. Do you have any it theories? Just, Go ahead. Sir. The only, I actually don't have a theory. I have no one theory that I believe more than anything else, except that in terms of president Kennedy's assassination, the official story just doesn't make any sense. Something else went on. I don't, but I don't claim to know what it is. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's been a blast talking to you, my friend. And uh, you, you, Thank you guys, a wonderful job. And I wish you continued success and thank you for coming on and making a great album for us. Before we we close out, Fritz, just give us a little thumbnail on uh, Motive for Murder and where people can find it. What Um, date is this? Motive for Murder is is a podcast from me and from Dateline and also from the creative team that brought you the thing about Pam. And it is available uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Motive for Murder, there's six episodes. You can download all of them. And there it is on your screen right now. And you can uh, you can watch it right now. And what what's the case? Give us a little bit about uh, that. It's a case for uh, that we covered a case that happened in 2012 uh, in Houston, Texas. Two murders, uh, 
10 months apart, uh, different parts of town, different jurisdictions. They didn't immediately seem to have any connection, except, I mean, they didn't seem to be connected, except that they were connected through the victims. Uh, in one case, the, a woman was killed. Uh, she was the girlfriend of this, uh, of this guy named Corey. And then 10 months later, Corey's twin brother, whose name was Cody, was murdered. So it strains your belief that these two things weren't connected, except what the connection was, was uh, something that took a long time for investigators to sort of wrap their heads around. It doesn't fit any of the typical Dateline templates. It's not the husband, it's not the wife, and it's not for the insurance money. And detectives say there are no coincidences, right? Well, there certainly were not in this case. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Mank, I appreciate it, my friend. Uh, uh, Nobody does it better than you do. And uh, it's it's being in local news. uh, We benefited for many years at the uh, successive dateline. Come out at 10 o'clock at night was great surfing into our 11 o'clock. It gave us great radio. Happy to help. Okay, my friend. Thank Thank you you so much, Josh. Thanks so much. This has been MediaCast. I'm Fritz Coleman. I'm Louise Palanker. Thanks for listening.